Perhaps no contract type requires more government oversight than cost reimbursements. Looking at just a small sample of invoices incurred by the National Security Agency, its Inspector General found the NSA has some work to do on that front. Here with details, Inspector General Robert Storch. Mr. Storch, good to have you back. It's a pleasure to be back, Tom. All right, so cost reimbursement contracts, are they a pretty substantial line item for the NSA to begin with? We looked in this audit at 151 cost reimbursement contracts in total for FY 2018. Now, it's interesting, that represented only about 2% of the number of contracts for that year, but 36% of the total contract dollars awarded. So these are really large dollar contracts, as you may know, and your listeners may remember. We've looked at a a number of different types of contracting vehicles at the NSA. A couple of years ago, I was uh, pleased to be on your program to talk about an audit we did on award fee contracts, where we questioned the justification for both the use and the percentages and ended up questioning all $636 million, I believe it was, in award fees from 54 contracts that we examined. So this time we were looking at cost reimbursement contracts, and as I say, numerically not a huge number of contracts, but from a dollar point of view, it was very significant. And it looks like the trends emerged very early, even if the sample was small, and you found that the agency's review of actual costs for cost reimbursement contract expenses was insufficient. That kind of seems to be a deal breaker right there. Yeah, we found a number of issues basically divided into sort of process type issues, process tools, workload, things like that. And then the actual review that was done of the contracts, as well as the external oversight. If I can, I want to pick up, you made a really good point at the outset that I just want to elaborate a bit on in terms of the need for what we call in the report maximum surveillance on these contracts. So cost reimbursement contracts have a particularly high risk to the government because you're reimbursing the contractor's costs. There's a potential there for cost escalation. And also, inherently, the government is paying the cost of performance, regardless of whether the contract requirements are met. So we, as I say, looked at FY 2018. We went through, we did a sampling plan, sort of stratified, divided into different levels of low, medium, and high cost contracts. Initially, we started with a universe of 150 invoices from 53 contracts. Then based on interviews and sort of commonalities in the way those were treated, we were able to develop a representative sample of 58 invoices from 18 of those contracts. And as you say, we found that there were significant insufficiencies in the review of actual costs, including that 70% of the invoices that we reviewed didn't have the details that would be necessary to actually review the labor costs. And as a result of that, we ended up questioning all 146 million in the amount of those invoices for labor costs. And interestingly, we found that of those invoices, 62%, so almost two-thirds of them, the contracting officer's representative relied on the contractor-prepared reports in order to approve the charges. So that ties in with another bullet point that you found that the contracting officer representative, I guess they used to be called COTARs, now they're called COR's, was ineffective and inefficient because they used the 
vendors at a station, if you will, of labor costs rather than some other means. How else could they have done it or should they have done it? So we actually went back through and reviewed procedures and policies in place for the cores, as they're called, and found a number of issues regarding their roles, responsibilities, and procedures. There actually are four different types of cores that are employed. They're what are called the primary cores. Then there's technical cores that support them with technical expertise, administrative cores, and then site cores for those at site. And we found that there was a lack of clarity on the roles and responsibilities for the different types of cores on the procedures they're supposed to follow, and an overemphasis, really, or a concern about processing these invoices promptly under the Prompt Pay Act, which basically gives the agency seven days to reject them. And that actually ended up taking precedence over the actual review. We also found that in 10 of the 13 primary cores that we examined would email their technical cores with regard to the invoices, and they didn't receive a response they would assume that it was okay. Only two actually required a response. And so basically they're assuming a level of review by the technical course that we found wasn't necessarily happening. So as a result of those and other issues, we recommended that the agency put in place written procedures for the different types of cores, a governance structure as between the cores, and then communication processes to ensure that the cores are communicating consistently. We're speaking with Robert Storch, Inspector General at the National Security Agency. So once the roles are clarified, then those that are responsible for cost reimbursement look-see then would be able to maybe have their mind focused on that task. Yeah, absolutely. Although there were other hurdles as well that we identified. One related to the tools that are being used. So basically we found that the agency uses what are called technical task orders or TTOs to track the funds but that, in fact, they weren't tracked in the agency financial management systems, but instead that was basically done manually, both with regard to the TTOs and the funding for them. And one of the systems that we describe in the report actually does have a field that could be used to track these TTOs, but we found that it wasn't used. So we recommended that the agency develop a system to track and store the TTOs in one place and then also to evaluate the use of that field to see if that would work, and if so, to develop procedures. Additionally, we found, and this wasn't directly related to the examination of the contracts themselves and the invoices, but that there was a lack of controls in the core tool, which is what's used to track the core appointments. So basically, they were using email distributions on these, and those weren't always updated, so you didn't necessarily have all the right cores getting the right information. So we recommended work on that. And then finally, another impediment is that it was reported to us that the cores were overloaded. The primary cores have lots of different duties. The technical cores work on a number of different contracts. There were some checklists that were utilized, but no procedures really to verify that they were used. And perhaps relatedly, it was reported to us that there was a high rate of attrition among these acquisition professionals. And obviously, it does require a certain level of expertise to be able to meaningfully review these invoices. And so we recommended that the agency look at the workload, do an evaluation of that, and develop a plan to ensure that it has appropriate resources. So there really were issues sort of on process, on tools and mechanics, 
and on workload that need to be evaluated here. And I should also mention, Tom, I mentioned the 70% of the invoices that didn't have the required details. Additionally, there's something called an approval of staffing clause. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but basically when you're talking about level of effort contracts, it requires that you get a waiver if you're going to go more than 20% above the contract labor weight. And we found in looking at the invoices that only 9% of the invoices had the invoices necessary to check to see whether that staffing clause was complied with, and that resulted in questioning another $80 million. In addition, there was overlap with the other 146. So in total, we end up questioning $227 million in labor charges from the sample, and the sample was about $304 million. So that actually represents questioning 75% of the total costs for those invoices. In addition to the labor that we also found, it's not as much money, but it was very high level of concern that 96% of the invoices that had travel costs didn't have sufficient documentation to enable the agency to determine if those costs were appropriate. The agency basically told us, or people we talked with told us, that the travel had been approved, but obviously that isn't the same thing as ensuring that the costs are proper, and so we questioned all 226000 of that as well. But overall, you're looking at $227 million in question costs in this audit from a sample of $304 million. And on the labor costs themselves, is the original contract the kind of reference point for what is allowable in terms of labor rates? Sure. And as I say, the contracts where you're talking about level of effort contracts have this provision for approval of staffing. So there can be some room there to get a waiver to go above certain rates, uh, but there has to be sufficient documentation to justify that. And we found that in the significant majority of the cases that wasn't there. Got it. And did the agency generally agree with your findings and your recommendations to fix those holes? They did, Tom. We made 22 recommendations in the report, and the agency did agree with all of them and said they were going to take action that, if taken, would be sufficient to meet the intent of the recommendations. I would say this report probably has universal readability across the federal government because whether it's classified or not, a cost reimbursement contract is a cost reimbursement contract. Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, we look at these contracting vehicles, and obviously, as we've discussed in other interviews, there are details that obviously we can't make public that are classified or otherwise. But from a general point of view, as we've discussed, these are contracts that carry a high level of risk that require a high level of surveillance to make sure that the government money is being spent properly. In fact, I just note that in three public reports, unclassified reports that we've released over the last couple of years, the award fee, the uh, report we talked about earlier this year on the insulation and logistics contract, and on this cost reimbursement contract, we've here at NSAOIG questioned almost just short of $1.3 billion. So it's a significant amount of taxpayer dollars, obviously. And as you say, the issues that we find you know, may have relevance across the government. And did the CORs ever look at the history of a particular contractor? I imagine some try to get away with murder on labor costs and some are, you know, squeaky clean. Uh, That's a great question, Tom. In fact, we found that there were not any procedures in place to ensure that the Corps were aware where there were contractors that had history of labor mischarging or any procedures for additional monitoring in those situations. And we made recommendations to address those as well. Additionally, we found that there was limited external oversight, 
DCAA serves as the DOD cognizant contract auditor. But we found that because of security concerns between NSA and DCAA and otherwise, that there was really over-reliance by management on that DCAA coverage. And we made a number of recommendations to help address that. I should say that the agency set up a process working group in April of 2019 to look into those issues, but that we found that there still were not policies and procedures in place to address them. Robert Storch is Inspector General at the National Security Agency. As always, thanks so much. Thank you for your interest in our work, Tom. Always a pleasure to be with you. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report, and if you're in contracting, read it at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, And then after I retired, after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con- consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I. We'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C-suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but 
uh, the quality that that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell C-Stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and 
reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.